Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Jada Woods can recall exactly when she got the talk. I remember when I was of driving age, my mom, that's basically when she gave me the talk, like the real talk. If you never had the talk, that's likely because you didn't grow up black in America. She was like, Jada, if you're driving on the highway and you get pulled over by police, don't stop there. Especially when it's like if it's dark, get off on the nearest exit and go somewhere light, go to a public place. And because I have a smart mouth, she goes... And don't talk back to a police officer and um, make sure that your hands are where they can see them. And she just went through that whole spiel. That whole spiel was meant to help keep Woods safe and to help her understand the reality of police violence against the black community. I remember her telling me this. And when she told me this, the expression on her face was very serious. But it wasn't until Woods learned about the shooting death of teenager Michael Brown that the talk really sunk in. It was scary when I heard about it because it was like, this man is the same age as me. Like, I remember the picture of him in his, like, graduation cap. And that's like, he he's could have been doing the things that I'm doing. Woods thought of her 19-year-old nephew and how easily Michael Brown could have been him. When the rioting began in Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of Brown's death, it made Woods sit up and pay attention. And when she got the opportunity to work on an oral history project in Ferguson through her university, she jumped at it. Me being black, I was thinking about Ferguson and I was like, this is something that I should do. I'm Lauren Ober and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to open your ears to some of the great conversations happening in podcasts today. Maybe, just maybe, may help you find some new things to listen to. This week, we thought we'd explore some of the issues our pal Jada Woods has been grappling with during her college career. Questions of race, identity, and division in America. But we're going to do it through podcasts. Woods is now a senior at the University of Dayton in Ohio. But at the end of her freshman year, she and seven other students headed to Ferguson, armed with recording equipment to capture the stories of people who lived there. The type of people that we wanted to interview were those people who just knew that they had to be there, people who quit their job to go protest, people who um, stopped something crazy from happening during the riots, people who showed moral courage, who didn't think twice before they did something because they knew it was it was morally correct and it was right. And they knew that they were supposed to do something and they did it. The result is a podcast called Ferguson Voices. Woods is the host. Here she is talking to law professor and activist Justin Hansford. Left reeling, many did not take time to process their experiences until months or years later. Some didn't even notice how they had been changed. Even, even to this day, I've had nightmares of friends being killed by police. I've had, you know, I was in Africa. You know, apparently I talked in my sleep. One time I was asleep in a car and I was saying, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, over and over again. (laughs) We're going to check in a little later with Woods about the Ferguson Voices Project. But first, we're going to travel back in time a bit, back to the 1860s, to a time when the country was divided not only by ideology, but by actual war. If you grew up in the U.S., you surely learned about the American Civil War. You know about the Union and Confederate sides. 
But did you know that there were a number of non-traditional soldiers fighting for the Union Army? Or that some people are still fighting for their ancestors' 40 acres and a mule to this day? Or that Harriet Tubman, the Moses of her people, served as a spy for the Union Army and was responsible for freeing more than 700 enslaved people in one single raid? Because she was an amazing lady. She grew up on a slave plantation, so she knew what it was like to maybe walk by a master and hear information, then tell another slave that information. She had a lot of experience being a spy and being under a lot of pressure by the time she met Montgomery. My name is Jade Lee, and I'm the great-great-great-grandniece of Harriet Tubman. Uncivil is a show that explores the untold stories of the Civil War— And those stories have deep resonance today since we're still wrestling with the legacy of division and racial injustice in America. Jack Hitt and Chenjirai Kumanyika are the hosts of Uncivil. Welcome to The Big Listen, guys. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I feel like... Your timing seems to be impeccable with this podcast, you know, because we are we are talking about the Civil War. We're talking about Civil War monuments. And I wonder sort of why was the Civil War something I still need to be thinking about in 2017? Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I mean, it's, you know, when we started this show, which was really like a year ago, probably, yeah. yep. there was a sense of like, OK, we need to really make sure we demonstrate the relevance of this in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned, that is no longer That's no longer the the challenge, I think. (laughs) Um, But I wasn't really thinking about the Civil War and was kind of not really interested in it. It just sounded to me for a long time, large part of my life, like homework or some social Mm -hmm. studies class type thing. But I eventually came to feel that it was really relevant to the current political moment. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of political battles that we have, for example, things like voting, things that have to do with uh, mass incarceration, things that have to do with violence and policing um, and, you know, just basic questions about what is the real nature of the United States. Right. All those things at the center of those are these debates and the Civil War helps you to really understand those things with a lot more depth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I came to discover all of those issues too, but coming from a very different place, which is that I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. and the Civil War is everywhere there. It's an inescapable fact of life in Charleston, and one that I, 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 I diligently avoided most of my childhood. I don't know why, I just, you know, I, I just parked it off to the side along with like learning about the combustion engine and the Atlanta Braves. And I just thought like, you know, these are three subjects I'm just going to like not deal with now and move on to something else in my life. So so Jack, are you saying when you, when you, when you were parking it off to the side at that point, it it wasn't the politics of it as the main thing. It just also just wasn't interesting. I think I'm flattering myself maybe a little too much here, but like I think even as a kid, I had a pretty good bullshit detector. Mm. Um, and when I saw those nice clean statues and this this nice very neat uh, story being told everywhere, I just felt like, eh, you know, either either I'm not sure this is true or this is really really boring. I am now only now many years later coming to realize, okay. I, I got to start looking at this thing. 
Right, right. Chandra, where are you from originally? Were you born in the South or are you a Northern guy? I'm more of a Northern guy. You know, I was born in in New York uh, City and then I lived in upstate New York for a long time and just different places, mostly on the East Coast. So I didn't really understand the South until I started working at Clemson University Mm -hmm. uh, about about four years ago. (laughs) That's quite a deep dive there. (laughs) It's a deep dive, especially since that campus is on the plantation of, it was formerly the plantation of John C. Calhoun. So Lauren, he's a little bit Union, I'm a little bit Confederate, and that's our show. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please, no, that's definitely not the show. <laughs> that is not the show. Right, right. That is not well, the show. I feel like we should point out, you know, Chandrai, you're black, Jack, you're white. And I feel like the show could have easily been some very well-meaning, like, kumbaya, we're all friends now. Like, let's hash out our differences, but nicely. Like, how do you, how are you guys navigating your own, your your own racial differences, your own personal histories through the, the stories that you're telling? Or are you? Well, I think one of the first things that Chandrai ever said to me is like, I don't do racial conversations. <laughs> I don't do healing. I'm not I'm not I'm not, not going to sit down and talk to you as a dialogue. Right. I mean we're both reporters. Yeah. And on that score, we've been having a blast. Yeah. I mean one thing that brought us together too was just really interesting stories. I mean like when we started sharing these stories, we were like, yo, these are some incredible stories. Right. You just and and a lot of really great stories get covered up by the cleaned up narrative. And it was really when Chenger and I started looking underneath kind of like the the battlefield stories, the generals, the list of dates and bull run, all of that, that's one narrative. Right. It's a military narrative. And for some reason, we kind of distilled the entire war as history into a kind of sporting event, right? right? It's always one side versus the other on this battlefield. But of course, the war was happening all over the country, everywhere else, all the time, by every group. And it's right. those stories that we thought, wow, how didn't I, why didn't I know this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, why didn't I know that there were a number of women who fought in the Civil War in, in male garb and passing as men? What's this? My, this is my breast binder. Okay. I just used materials that would have been available to a mid-19th century person. So, mm-hmm. you know, the straps are the same kind of cotton strapping that what we used to tie our signal flags to the poles. And these, this is so much more comfortable. The sports yeah. bra is just, it's like thick and heavy and compresses and kind of gives you like this monoboob effect. Yeah, in the exactly. front. <laughs> you want to be, you know, flat and manly. <laughs> That's Audrey. Her battlefield partner, Tracy, says the two of them are damn good at what they do. At a reenactment this past summer, they said, Somebody that knew us. He was at this event. We were there Friday, Saturday. Well, come Sunday, this fellow says to some of the other guys in the unit, um, so when are these women supposed to show up? And we'd been there all along. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. (laughs) Audrey and Tracy can laugh about it, but when they get caught, they catch hell from the male reenactors. They've been threatened, banned from reenactments for being inauthentic, which they say is Audrey and Tracy say they're just as accurate as any of the men. That's the other rumor you hear on the battlefield. Women did fight in the Civil War, and they've been fighting ever since to prove it. I think that was one of some of the fun and challenge of the show is in a story, for example, it has to do with uh, issues of, you know, like, you know, women soldiers and issues of gender and what that meant uh, in the Civil War to think about how are those questions that we're dealing with now, how did they start 
or what did they look like at that time? And so really break, you know, kind of writing that into our stories and wrestling with that has been some of the some of the really challenging and interesting stuff about making this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, every generation likes to flatter itself that like all of the stuff that we're dealing with is brand new, that only (laughs) we are dealing with this. Right. And I think especially right now, a lot of people think that like all the issues of like gender identity of of gayness and straightness, all of these questions are like brand new to us. And uh, they're not. Right, right. You know, one thing I wonder is, like, what do you think America's sort of enduring fascination is with the Civil War or white America's fascination, which seems odd to me? Well, one one reason is, is because I think we all know in our bones that it's not finished. The mm-hmm. triumphant declarations of, like, you know, ending slavery and abolitionism, that's all fine. But, of course, we paid for that by creating a racist system that then would last for another hundred years. Jim Crow didn't happen in the South. It happened in the North. That was part of the deal. I mean, that's really one of the key unfinished aspects of the war mm-hmm. and is that that conversation's really never been opened up or or, or had in any way uh, that's honest. You know, one thing that Jack raises interesting is... I'm not sure if the South has an identity without the Civil War. Mm. And I think that that's one reason why there's you see this tremendous nostalgia is because it's deeply wrapped up with Southern identity. And just because we moved on historically to whatever extent we've moved on, the identity of the South is still very much wrapped up in that. It's something I learned living there. I, one thing that happened for me when I lived in South Carolina was I came to a new understanding of the whole country mm-hmm. because I realized that these issues that we say this is just the south like the south has these issues with slavery and stuff like that it wasn't just in the south mm-hmm. at all and so the south north breakdown doesn't really work actually well, one of the things when you really dig underneath the the sort of statue stories is you find out how complicated the real demographics were in the south and in the north you know there was a secession movement in new york city led by the mayor right because there was so much pro-confederate sentiment up here Right. Mm -hmm. And there were plenty of unionists uh, down south. And of course, so when you say what would have been like if the south won? Well, that's an interesting question, because, of course, the south did win. Black southerners won. Pro-union southerners won. So what south are you referring to? Mm -hmm. I have a question. It's something that I've always wondered about. (laughs) Why people (laughs) go out and redo wars um, like, do other countries reenact their own civil wars? Like, is this just an American thing? When we first like looked into this, uh, that was that was probably the first like several days of our conversations as Ginger I going, what? Why does anyone do this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I went on a journey of discovery in reference to that. I mean, it was like I was just like, yo, it's one thing to have an effect, a sort of affection for history and for the Confederate side of the history. It's another thing to have that affection be so strong that you want to dress up and go do that repeatedly. But one thing I did come to understand is that a lot of these people are consider themselves a kind of historian. Right. And I mean, I think about the way I learned history. I don't know how you learned it, but it wasn't that. It wasn't really super engaging. (laughs) Right. And so, yeah, I mean, so to say like, oh, a college history professor, that's fine. That's nothing to be laughed at. But a person who wants to actually act it out, that's ridiculous. It's like, well, you know. But I will say, I mean, there's something about the Civil War reenactments that's particularly peculiar to to this country like Chindrai called me at one point uh, early on and said like okay here's the quiz when was the first civil war reenactment when, when do you think it was Lauren I would think it would be in 1951 Chindrai what's the answer 
I think it was 1861. Oh, 1861. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. It was still happening? <laughs> Literally months after it happened. We were already like, oh, this God. is really interesting. There were reenactments as the war was happening and right. other battles were being reenacted in other places. That is bananas. So I think that on one level, it's that it, it is traumatic. But I think on another level, people are trying to make sense of it. I feel like um, considering that you guys are both deeply immersed in, in Civil War history right now, I wonder what each of you think of all of this action around Confederate monuments at this precise moment in history. What are you thinking about? Well, I can tell you one thing I'm thinking about. I mean, one of the great enduring fictions of the war is the Lost Cause narrative, that mm-hmm. these were heroic generals who performed honorably in battle and just lacked enough of the material resources to pull Mm -hmm. off the victory. And that it was never about slavery. It was always about states' rights and and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It takes about five minutes of library research to find out that none of that is true. (laughs) But I do think like this is this rare opportunity in in American culture where we have a, a, a chance to sort of set that narrative aside and try to look at some some of the real history that happened. I mean, one of the reasons why I think so many of these statues that no one thought would ever come down are suddenly coming down is because especially a much younger generation hears this story and goes, nah. Yeah. Right. 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 Especially because a lot of them were put up in like, the, you know, the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and, you know. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think that something about the permanency and weight and size yeah. and placement of a statue makes people feel like you're doing something wrong by removing it, even if the narrative that the statue is promoting is wholly false. Right. Uh, I mean, everybody was really excited uh, to talk about taking down or, you know, um, Robert E. Lee statue. But, you know, recently the some of the black student activists went and raised questions about the Thomas Jefferson statue. Sure. You know, like where where are the points of convergence between his legacy and and Robert E. Lee's legacy? Sure. You want to say there's none, you know, and that was a much different kind of conversation there because suddenly a lot of people who had been condemning Robert E. Lee suddenly found themselves wanting to defend Jefferson. Yeah, I'll tell you, I saw a picture of of an empty pedestal in one of these towns in the picture, in a paper. Um, And I have to say it's the most arresting image I've seen. I mean, yeah. to look at a statue is one thing, but to see the the horse and the dude gone, and it's just this flat, big piece of granite, it does <laughs> it does totally force you to ask this question. Well, who does belong there? Jack Hitt and Chenjerai Kumanyika are the hosts of Uncivil from Gimlet Media. To find out more about their show, check out BigListen.org. Now, remember our pal Jada Woods from the top of the show. She's also helping preserve an important chapter in American history, just like the folks behind Uncivil. Except she's focusing on a very specific story, the aftermath of the uprising in Ferguson, Missouri. As a student at the University of Dayton, Woods participated in an oral history project to record the voices of people who were impacted by Ferguson. Their stories became a podcast called Ferguson Voices. Here's one from Scott Bonner, the director of the Ferguson Municipal Public Library. And at some point I hear this boom, 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 like echoing throughout the library. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I look up at the security monitor and I see that there's like a, I don't know, eight or ten people outside the library's front door trying to kick it in. They're trying to kick in the glass door. And so I'm like, what? And I grab my little fire extinguisher and I come running around the corner going, no, no, not here, not here. And the the crowd kicked the door a half dozen more times, and then they left. 
Recording all these stories in Ferguson had more of an impact on Woods than she anticipated. There was just something about hearing people speak their own truth in their own words that moved her. It was very emotional because everyone telling the story had a lot of different emotions. Some people were angry. Some people were upset. Some people's stories were just heartbreaking. And some of them were just shocking and scary. But the stories Woods heard in Ferguson about racial slights and prejudice weren't totally unfamiliar to her. I've had little racial discriminations and then things like microaggressions when people say like little things or even hearing a guy like, oh, you're really pretty for a black girl and little digs like that. And hearing their stories, I could I could relate to them, but I could not imagine going through what they went through. For Woods, the project showed her the value of listening, but also how it can be hard being a conduit for other people's stories. Hearing everyone's story, you kind of take some of their weight with you. But we were we tried to like get it out through different outlets by like debriefing and doing reflections. So that kind of helped at the same time. But it's just like, I feel like I will always have those people's stories with me just from hearing them and just knowing what they've been through. It's time for a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll hear from social justice activist DeRay McKesson about his path to activism. So I get in a car, drive nine hours, end up in St. Louis. And the second night that I'm in St. Louis, you know, this is the very beginning of the protest, um, was the first night that I was ever tear gassed. And it was in that moment that I was like, I'm a protester. But first, we'll hear from the host of the show, Us and Them, about trying to bridge our many American cultural divides. Is there a way that that we can kind of come out of these echo chambers or these clusters that we kind of group into with like-minded people, with like-minded worldviews. If there's a way that we can step out of those echo chambers into the neutral zone and just have a respectful and maybe an empathetic conversation. That's coming up in a bit. Stick around. This is NPR. This is Alex Burson in San Francisco, California, and I can't wait for the next episodes of the Recordings podcast. How did you feel going back to school? It was hard, man. It was hard. It was like everybody, like my mother, everybody, my family, me, they just, like me, I never thought I was going to graduate high school. There was a few times when um, my friends would get into a fight before I would run and fight with them. It was a couple times that they got into fights and I was like, I'm not getting in that. Like, I'm not involving myself in that. Like, if it don't got nothing to do with me, I'm not involving myself in that. So that's when I started noticing the change. It gives me hope that people that were going in the wrong direction can change their hearts and minds and make this world a better place. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and if you're like Alex from San Francisco and you can't wait for the episode of your favorite podcast to drop, let us know about it. Call up the pod line at 202-885-POD1. We're happy to share in your enthusiasm. When Peabody award-winning journalist Trey Kay was growing up in Charleston, West Virginia, his high school was divided into two groups, Hillers and Creekers. The Hillers were the well-off kids, the kids whose parents were doctors or lawyers. The Creekers were the kids from the proverbial other side of the tracks, the ones who were rowdy and drove huge trucks. What do you remember about the Hillers and the Creekers? 
well, whether or not you were from money or not, uh, which we, you know, in my family, we weren't. I mean, we had to watch every every dime back then. But the Creekers were even, they were in worse shape than that. And they used to really take it hard for what they thought was the rich boys that were up on the hill. These days, Kay's world isn't demarcated into hillers and creekers. But there are divisions still, liberal and conservative, northern and southern, black and white. And at a time when most of us just want to retreat into our own camps, Kay is wading into the divide. Trey Kay, host of Us and Them, welcome to The Big Listen. Hey, thank you so much, Lauren. Okay, so I, I feel like you're maybe a little bit masochistic and wanting to take on the the topic of like, I'm just going to talk about all the things that make us fight with each other. Well, I mean, I didn't start off making it all of the things that make us fight. I mean, all the cool kids in radio production were, were making long form pieces. And I thought, <laughs> well, I, w- I want to do that too. And what, what could I do that on? And I started looking back at my childhood in Charleston, West Virginia. And I remembered back when I was a 12 year old that there was this textbook controversy that happened in my in my county on april 11th in the spring of 1974 the kanawha county board of education met to consider some new textbooks that were being proposed for adoption the meeting will please come to order we're starting a little bit late this evening my name is becky burns i was a member of the five member textbook selection committee in Kanawha County Schools in 1974. Thelma Conley presented um, the rationale for the selection. Not only did the committee look for multi-ethnic content, but also um, multicultural. We were uh, operating under state guidelines. One of the guidelines, which was a new one, was that the textbooks, they should be multicultural in their content and in their authorship. And I remember it was a time where there were bombings in schools and that the Ku Klux Klan was marching on the the state capitol and that there were snipers firing at school buses. Because of of multicultural textbooks or because they wanted to change the textbooks that students in the county were using. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when I was digging into that subject, I realized that I really liked people on both sides of of the issue. Mm -hmm. Really what I think that I have tried to do with the Us and Them podcast and I tried to do with with the documentary about the the Great Textbook War is is there a way that, that we can kind of come out of these echo chambers or these clusters that we kind of group into with like-minded people, with like-minded worldviews, if there's a way that we can step out of those echo chambers into the neutral zone and just have a respectful and maybe an empathetic conversation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we decided when we first kind of laid out what we thought us and them was about was that, yeah, it could be about politics. It could be about religion. It could be about many different things. But really what we saw was this show was really about sorting Mm -hmm. and how it is that we sort each other into different camps of 
okay, this is this is our tribe. These these are the good guys, and mm-hmm. those people over there, I don't know so much about them. Yeah, we're going to have to somehow figure out why this need to sort each other into different camps. Why why we do this? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is it is it is it useful? Is it counterproductive? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking, it, it reminds me of the story you did, uh, Hillers and Creekers, and the Hillers were the folks who, like yourself, who who lived up on the hill, and they were more middle class, and their parents maybe had professional jobs. And sometimes and, really rich. Right, right. And then the, and then the Creekers were more working class or working poor, um, yeah. and one of your classmates who was a Creeker or put in the Creeker category. He would tell you he's a proud Creeker. My shoes came from Pickway. To people who don't know, what's Pickway? Pickway would be the equivalent of like shoe carnival now. So like an inexpensive place to buy cheap shoes? <laughs> Very inexpensive. My tennis shoes growing up cost about $2 a pair. So just walk me through that a little bit. So basically, you know, you went to school and, and were you kind of a little bit embarrassed of your, your, your Pickway shoes? And, and that, like, you know, mom and dad kind of just at least have something that, that you know, I'm not going to be laughed at or whatever. All these other kids have Adidas and Nikes. And, and you really had to kind of lean on your parents to to let you get some shoes that, uh, is that? I feel like I've touched a nerve. They didn't understand. I don't think they understood the difference. I ended up taking my own money and I went and bought the uh, Nike Cortez, I think is what they called it. Yeah, yeah. The red stripe. With the red swoop on it. Yeah, it's not a stripe, it's a swoop. I mean, you know, Nike will let you know that. I think that shoe cost $35. I remember. I remember. It did make me think a lot about my own, you know, well, what what did I do? How was how was I um, you know, sort of complicit in in any yeah. kind of bad behavior like that in school? And I'm sure that I was. Actually, as you were saying that, I I remembered there was another person who I interviewed and I knew that she could help me. But I was reluctant to call her because I knew in my heart that there had been some times when I had not treated her very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I called her, you know, she was happy to hear from me and she helped me out and stuff like that. And at one point I decided to kind of come clean and say, you know, hey. And she she gave it to me with both barrels. Mm-hmm. And in a way there was something that was kind of cathartic in that because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need to have um, – Sometimes like these humbling uh, moments where, where we you know can have that kind of self reflection, mm-hmm. and some people just to call us out, hit us right between the eyes. Yeah, I want to talk about the Confederacy because you all have uh, dug into issues relating to the Civil War. Oh yeah. And I wonder, you know, in in your reporting, what you've gleaned about why flags and and monuments. Um, divide people so much, or or maybe rather why people care so much about these symbols. If you listen to the Us and Them podcast, there's a woman who I have gone to over and over again. Her name is Alice Moore. 
I had gone to visit her down in her home in uh, Tennessee, and just below the border is Corinth, Mississippi, which which has a graveyard or a cemetery that has a lot of Confederate soldiers, and there are a lot of Confederate battle flags planted next to the tombstones. And she wanted to take me there. Mm-hmm. And she, the reason she wanted to take me there is because she wanted me to see the flags. So it's unfair to you that that this icon, the the flag, continues to be associated with slavery. Well, what can I do about that? It's just inaccurate education. <laughs> the slaves were often far better off than poor Southerners. It seems as though you're giving a very broad assessment of how all slaves were treated in the South, and I think that there is a record that, 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 that basically speaks against what you just said. Well, I can tell you this. I can show you some old reports about some of the wealthy black slave owners in the South. I went to the museum where they had all these, you know, very prominent-looking black families. They had their own social life, and they're finely dressed people, obviously very prosperous people. I checked this out, and historians say there's truth in what Alice is saying about some black people owning slaves. But it's complicated. There were even some white slaves who would sell themselves into slavery for, you know, to get passage to America or something. Slavery is not a racial thing. I don't think it was a racial thing per se because blacks had slaves. And when they would, this, it, Trey, they did. Alice, I hear that. But, but Trey, Alice, 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 you the Alice, facts Alice what, you, what you were doing is you were reaching in and you're finding some very, like a, a little chestnut of an idea that you're holding out there and you're okay. saying, doesn't this change everything? No, no, and it, I'm and not. it doesn't. What's it doesn't the, change everything. It, it doesn't change everything. I mean, I just want you to understand this is not. It's like, especially when I talk to Alice, I feel like. That, that she's so invested in believing in this kind of benign, gallant, and in some cases, Disneyfied right. version of the South, that, that she will just blow by all other evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Your, your question was like, why, why do you think they're so attached to it? It's, it's for some reason, their sense of identity is wrapped up in a love for their region, a love for what they consider to be the values of those region of that region, and that they feel a resentment that they are being defined by somebody other than themselves. Trey Kay is the host of Us and Them from our pals at West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX. To find out more about the show, check out biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another super speedy break, but when we come back, we'll check in with the educator-turned-activist, DeRay McKesson, about how a newsletter helped him turn into a social justice leader. I remember making it on my couch. I remember being like, I'm like Googling like MailChimp templates, like I can't figure it out. And I'm like trying to find people on Twitter to help me. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make it. I sat on the couch for like four hours. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. This is NPR. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, Lauren. My name is Kate McNair. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. I wanted to recommend the podcast Wide Ruled, which explores equality in education. The story that hooked me on Wide Ruled was all about charter schools. A lot of us wanted to figure out, you know, the good school options in the city and um, how we could, you know, find the best seats for our kids and stay in the neighborhoods that we loved. Uh, but so much of the conversation that we heard, it was don't go to that school or, um, you know, this, the whole system is bad, there's only a couple of good schools. What I love about Wide World is that it highlights local stories and people and brings understanding to the national conversation about education. Check it out. I think you'd enjoy it. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and if you have a topic you're passionate about and somebody's made a podcast about it, don't be shy. Tell us what it is. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. You might recall that in the wake of the shooting death of teenager Michael Brown, a figure emerged. This figure soon became recognizable at protests in Ferguson, Baltimore, and other cities because of one article of clothing, a bright blue Patagonia vest. Duray McKesson was a school administrator in Minneapolis when he heard the news about Ferguson. And what he heard moved him to hop in his car and drive to Missouri to participate in the action. Since then, he's become an outspoken advocate for racial and social justice. And he's pretty easy to spot in crowds because of the vest. I've seen you wearing that everywhere you, you go. You know, I wear it every day. It's a good vest. Is yours bulletproof, though? Yeah, I don't. I, I can't give away the secrets. That is, you got, it's a good color. It's a nice color. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it fits you well. I love it. I, love I think it. I think I'm ready for this. Yeah, I think I'm ready. That's McKesson getting a little sartorial ribbing from Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. McKesson now has a huge microphone with which to get the movement's message out. Nearly a million people follow him on Twitter. He's been on just about every cable news show. And now he has his own podcast called Pod Save the People. Before we jump into this episode, I'll just remind you that you did not get here alone. That your successes are because there were people who cared about you, who believed in you, who poured into you, who helped you be the best person that you could be. And that that is true for all of us that our best is a compilation of the love and the support that we've gotten. Duray McKesson, welcome to The Big Listen. It's great to be here. All right, so I want to, just before we get into sort of talking about your show, I believe on a whim you drove down to the protests um, that were happening in the wake of, of Mike Brown's death. And, and I wonder sort of how that um, initial protest changed you. Or like, do you remember your aha moment? Yeah, so Mike got killed on August 9th, uh, 2014, and I was sitting on my couch on August 16th, uh, which was a Saturday. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I saw what was happening on CNN, and I saw what was happening on Twitter, and they were two completely different stories. On CNN, it looked like the protesters were sort of wild and angry and upset for no reason. And on Twitter, it was like righteous indignation because it was a kid who should be alive. Right. And I said I should go, and I remember I like... My best friend uh, lived in Chicago, and he just got married. And one of our sort of unspoken rules was that I wouldn't call in the middle of the night now that he had a wife. So it was like <laughs> one o'clock, and I'm just like waiting. You know, I like want to call. I want to call somebody to be like, I think I'm gonna go to St. Louis, but I couldn't call him in the middle of the night. He right. was probably my best shot too, because my father would be like, "Don't go." My sister right. would be fifty-fifty. So I wait till like seven fifty-five. <laughs> I call him, he answers, and I'm like, hey, I think, I think I'm going to go, da, da, da. And he's like, if you think you should go, you should go. So I get in a car, drive nine hours, end up in St. Louis. And the second night that I'm in St. Louis, you know, this is the very beginning of the protest, um, was the first night that I was ever tear gassed. And it was in yeah. that moment that I was like, I'm a protester. 
So, you know, you said that this that the sort of general movement is is non hierarchical and it's the people um, who created this. But you are you have emerged definitely as a spokesman um, in, in that people look to you to you know, they want to know what you have to say. You become a leader. And I wonder, how did you find yourself in this particular position? You know, when I was out in Ferguson, what was one of the most interesting things was that, like I wasn't from St. Louis. Right. I didn't know anybody in the state of Missouri when I first went down. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to, like, go home and check in with people in the middle of the night. Like I did, those were things that other people had to do that I didn't. So I got to be out and around, like in ways that other people just didn't have the freedom and flexibility too because they were from St. Louis and Mm -hmm. I was using Twitter I always think about Twitter as like the friend that's always awake and I was using Twitter as a way to like tell somebody what was happening because it was so wild to me too and I started a newsletter and it became like a central hub for the way that we were organizing I remember making it on my couch. I remember being like, I'm like Googling like MailChimp templates. Like I can't figure it out. And I'm like trying to find people on Twitter to help me. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make it. And I sat on the couch for like four hours. MailChimp used to have this uh, this text platform called Gather, which you probably have never heard of mm-hmm. because they don't use it anymore. But when the no indictment decision came down, I ha- I set it up so that like, you would get a text alert from us. And there mm-hmm. were so many people that signed up in 24 hours that it was more than MailChimp, the service could allow. Mm-hmm. So they emailed me and they were like, DeRay, we know you're planning to do this because like we can see the signups, but <laughs> please email us like before you send out something because it'll just break <laughs> the server. Um, so I want to talk about the podcast, Pod Save the People. Obviously, you have made a name for yourself via social media. And I wonder if the podcast is sort of an extension of that uh, social media activism and that it's sort of you know, podcasts are democratized in in a way, and there's sort of this like, you know, quick and dirty uh, method to get information out. I know that I have a big platform that is not meant to just be about me, right? That like right. the platform exists for something bigger than me, and mm-hmm. I'm always trying to figure out like, the best way to do that. When when the protests were at the beginning, or for the first two years, it was like traveling to different cities. It was uh, being everywhere. It was be protesting and telling stories and like amplifying voices that otherwise didn't have a platform. Mm-hmm. And I think about that with with the podcast. It's like you know we don't talk about Trump often. Uh, because the rest of the world's talking about him, but there's so yeah. many other important things that are happening. And like, I want the podcast to be a place where you like are exposed to different topic. You know, so I had this yeah. episode with Snowden that I thought was I was going to bring that really up. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you talk about race and security. You never see these powers uh, being used against the most privileged members of society, right? Bill Gates uh, doesn't have the FBI coming after him, leaving cards on his door that say, hey, can you give us a call? We just want you to know we're watching, basically. Very, very polite uh, warning. Thank you, FBI. Because he can enforce his interests. He can enforce his rights. He can actually reshape the boundaries of rights in a society. He can reshape the statutes and the laws within our society by using his access to resources, his access to power. But if you're in those minority groups, You feel these powers applied against you. You see them, right? You see a neighbor who gets arrested. Uh, You see somebody uh, who, it it can be something simple, right? We don't have to be talking about these great powerful things. They just don't catch the breaks that other people do. I'm not interested in entertaining you, but I I do want you to like learn, you know? I want you Mm -hmm. to listen to it and come away being like, wow, I didn't know that 
welfare hasn't changed at all. The dollar amount for welfare is the same dollar amount as it's been since the 1990s, right? Which yeah. is wild. Yeah. Or like, what's the difference between a prison and a jail, you know, or mm-hmm. a misdemeanor and a felony? It's those sort of like things that until you hear Kim Fox, the state's attorney in Cook County that that oversees Chicago, like until you hear her talk about her role, like you just don't know what you don't know, you know? But can we talk about your Katy Perry interview for a minute? Oh, God. <laughs> why, why oh god why oh god because i got why a lot oh of I, katie is a friend i got a lot of flack for interviewing you did. katie perry you got dragged on twitter like pretty I hard did. for that I yeah did. why why did you get dragged you tell me i mean you know i think i got dragged because people didn't actually listen to the interview but <laughs> people's people just saw the picture of you sitting on her white couch oh with my no god. shoes and on. they were like "Ray <laughs> is coddling this white woman about appropriation and like it should be a black woman talking to her and da-da. and it's like you know it, it was it's i don't even know what to say it's so frustrating it is uh, people are really upset about upset with me about some things that like literally just aren't true and the Katy Perry one was so interesting because if you listen to the interview we go back and forth right like I push on some things like we don't always agree now about race you have gotten I don't know if you've seen it but you've gotten pushback about uh, these critiques about you appropriating culture whether it is black culture whether it is Asian culture Uh, and when we think about the difference between appreciation and appropriation we think about appreciation as uh as acknowledging the roots of something, right? So like if you are engaging in culture, acknowledging the source of it, and we think about appropriation as sort of wholesale taking without acknowledging sort of the roots or where it came from. And that's a What's your response to the critiques that you've gotten sort of generally before we go into some specifics? Well, I wanted to say that's something I just learned, the difference between appropriating and appreciating is like what it means to actually appreciate versus appropriate. And I think, you know, in my att- intention to admire culture and appreciate, I actually appropriated. I actually made a mistake because I didn't educate myself, because I didn't have the information or I didn't have the time. I didn't make the time. And, you know, with my life moving so fastly, like it's like I'm juggling 7,000 balls, but I made mistakes and I have made mistakes. And like, I've made several mistakes, even in like the This Is How We Do video about how I wore my hair and having a hard conversation with one of my empowered angels, Cleo, about what does it mean? Why why can't I wear my hair that way? Or what is the history behind wearing the hair that way? And she told me about the power in black women's hair mm. and how beautiful it is and the struggle. And I listened the clip that like hit Twitter was like a two minute clip that's literally just her talking. And whether you like what she says or not, like you don't hear anything I say because it's just her talking. <laughs> but people were like, he's coddling her or like, what happened to black women? And it's like, you know, a black woman is who invited me there. There were a lot of black women who were right. at the house for the for the duration of the time she was there. Anybody could have asked Katie a host of questions. It wasn't like I was the only right. person that met with Katie Perry. A lot of people went with her. Right. So that it was interesting to see like think pieces from like all these outlets being like DeRay McKesson coddles Katy Perry. And you're like, did you <laughs> listen to the podcast actually? Um, well, DeRay McKesson, host of Pod Save the People, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. Boom. Great to be here. Jeremy McKesson is the host of Pod Save the People from Crooked Media. To find out more about his show, hit up biglisten.org. 
Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and just hit subscribe. Then we'll appear on your feed every week and you don't even have to lift a finger. Except to hit play, I mean. But still, it's like barely anything. Also, check us out on Facebook or Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. We're more fun than the Adult Daycare Center at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Ooh, ouch. If you and your mom would like to send us sappy e-cards, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was planning my Halloween costume. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks to Timmy Olmsted and Al Reynolds for always giving us a boost. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yor, and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And this week marks The Big Listen's one-year anniversary. So, happy birthday to us. Happy birthday! Thanks to all of you for being super big listeners and for sharing the show with friends. If you like what we've done so far, let a pal know about it. Or go and drop us a review in Apple Podcasts. Or both. Whatever. We're not picky. And thanks for putting your ears on us this past year. And now a few final thoughts from Jada Woods. She's a senior at the University of Dayton, and in 2015, she and a group of students traveled to Ferguson, Missouri, to interview people impacted by the uprising there. Recently, they turned their recordings into a podcast called Ferguson Voices. The project was one of the most formative experiences of Wood's college career. I took away that, like, if I feel that something is wrong, not to, not to like, double think and not to, like, pause and, oh, maybe, like, someone else will do something about it. But to actually stand up and do something about it, no matter the cost. If there's one thing Woods would like listeners to glean from their interviews in Ferguson, it's this. Ferguson is more than what you saw in the news. It was where people lived and most, if not all, the people who were looting and rioting didn't even live there. And those people who lived there, they protected places. They protected places like Kathy's Kitchen. They like literally stood in front and wouldn't let people harm it. They wouldn't let people throw chairs at it. So when you hear all the things about, oh, the people of Ferguson were rioting and they were messing everything up because this kid got shot by police and was killed. I just want the people who listen to the podcast to know that there's always multiple sides to a story and everything isn't just what you see. Or what you hear. Thanks for hanging out, friends. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR. NPR.